Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our class of Martin Chemnitz in Caridian. We're going to be looking today at good works or new obedience. This section begins on page 96. Of course, we just started it last week, so we'll be uh, starting back in at 97 after a brief reintroduction to the material. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. So our good works necessary. That's the fundamental question here that has led into Kenneth's discussion of good works or the new obedience. Are good works necessary for salvation? Changes that question dramatically, doesn't it? So are good works necessary? The Book of Concord would say yes, but not for justification. Are good works necessary for justification? Of course not. So there's these two historical figures, George Major, who taught that good works were necessary and really wanted to cling to that language without clarifying that they're not necessary for justification. And then on the other side, kind of the opposite error was Nicholas von Amsdorf and his take that good works are detrimental to salvation. So, you know, (laughs) at all costs, avoid good works. So in the formula of Concord, Article 4 is on good works, Article 5 is on law and gospel, and Article 6 is on the third use of the law. That little suite of articles is all about good works, new obedience, and how this whole thing works, with Article 4 being specific to the majoristic controversy, as it's called, between Major and von Amsdorf. So good works are necessary, indeed. God commands them. So you have that, that aspect in the scriptures, but then you also have um, a descriptive aspect where um, those who are Christians do good works. So good works are necessary, just not necessary for justification. The article of justification, uh, good works are completely excluded, as well as new obedience. Okay, we left off on question 190. Are good works necessary to justification or to salvation? By no means. For as has been pointed out above, justification and our salvation does not depend on our works, but alone on the obedience, passion, and death of Christ. And it is apprehended and applied to us by faith alone, and thus consists only in free reconciliation and remission of sins. Uh, Romans 4, 7, and 16. And maybe it's worthwhile to just turn there very quickly. I hesitate to do this too much. It will take an already long class and make it longer if we go looking at every scripture reference. But every once in a while, it's certainly worthwhile to see the scriptural foundation from which these points are being made. So, Romans 4, 7. And I'm just going to back us up to the beginning of 4, so you can see this for yourself. 
What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted or credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. That should make sense to you because if you've ever been gainfully employed, at the end when you get your wages, you don't write a thank you note. So your wages aren't a gift, your wages are what is due. That's in regard to the one who works. Now look at the contrast in five, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And here's verse 7 then. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Okay, so you can see the exclusion of works and um, the exclusive particles that we mentioned before with Chemnitz. You can see in this text, especially in that just the last three words of verse 6, apart from works, that's part of the exclusive particles. And then if we go on to 16, let's just go to 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? So is it for Jew or also for Gentile? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. There's a twofold point here that Paul's making. The first point is that Abraham believed before he was circumcised. So by a kind of Jewish reckoning, Abraham believes as a Gentile and is counted as righteous as a Gentile. And then he's circumcised and he continues to believe. So he's the father of all who have faith, whether uncircumcised or circumcised. That's point one. Point two that he's making is that he's justified before circumcision. Circumcision is the beginning of the law. So he's justified before there's any work. And in fact, the work is a seal of the justification that has already taken place. So Paul getting a lot of mileage out of uh, Abraham here, but also then in verse 7 and 8, quoting David. So justification by grace through faith, apart from works, is a doctrine of the Old Testament. 
all the faithful of the Old Testament believed what we believe. They looked forward to the Christ, the Christ who was in their midst, of course, and the Christ who would come and be revealed as Jesus. We simply look back at the Christ and know that his name is Jesus, and then also look into our midst at his ongoing work among us as well. But it's faith in Jesus that justifies, that makes right in God's sight, in the Old Testament and the New. So then who are the real children of Abraham? Those that share his genetic material? Nope. Those who are circumcised and keep the law? Nope. Those who have faith. So this is then what Paul will go on to describe throughout this text and other texts, that Abraham is the father of all who have faith, and if Abraham is the father of Israel, so to speak, then we are all Israel if we have faith in Christ. We share in Abraham's faith. And the God who justifies apart from works and the God who justifies the ungodly. So far, so good? I know there's a lot packed in there, but one of the implications of this is that whatever is going on in the quote-unquote nation-state of Israel, uh, it has nothing to do whatsoever with the scriptures, nothing to do whatsoever with... um, In fact, it's not even biblically defined as Israel. Biblically, Israel is whoever believes in Christ. That's been true in the Old Testament and the New. And that's a point Paul will make where he says, not all of Israel is Israel. That is to say that even amongst the, those that are the genetic offspring of Abraham, only a certain portion of them have the faith of Abraham. Thus, not all of Israel is true Israel. Not all of Israel is believing Israel. Make sense? Okay, so a thoroughly sound biblical foundation upon which we exclude good works, we exclude new obedience from the equation of justification. Um, We have this scripture and we have many others, some of which are going to be quoted here, cited here, I mean. So let's just pick back up where we left off in the Chemnitz text, right about the middle of paragraph 190. Therefore, as it is not to be taught in the church of God, excuse me, therefore, as it is not to be taught in the church of God because of the exclusive particles that good works are necessary for justification, so since Scripture determines and protects the article of salvation with equal diligence, and here's the other citations, Luther also rightly and properly rejected and excluded that proposition, namely that good works are necessary for salvation from our churches. Pardon me one second. I'm going to turn on a little air. If you start freezing, let me know. You can feel my thoughts grinding together like poorly oiled gears. All right. Any thoughts on 190? Clear enough? Yeah, please. Um, Hold on one second. We'll get your mic. I just want to go back to what you were saying about um, Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, it was my understanding, maybe this is from my covenant um, theology background, that they were given a covenant by through, Mos- through the Mosaic law, but it was conditional. 
but we now have a covenant with Christ that's unconditional. So in that sense, is there a difference of, as far as salvation? Or It's very true that you were saying that it's just a belief in Christ alone, but how does this covenant, or if this, even if, it's, if that's the right way of looking at it as far as the covenant yeah, well, I'll just, I mean, rather than make a critique on the different views of that, uh, when the Old Covenant, the covenant of the law, is given, insofar as it's a conditional covenant, it's a covenant not met. What then is the purpose of such a covenant that would just demonstrate to generation after generation and then indeed to the whole world that we could not keep up our end of the bargain? That's the law revealing sin and driving all the more to the need for a savior. So that's, that is a take, a perspective on the law and the covenant that's given. And Paul sometimes takes that angle on the law, on, on the covenant. Um, so insofar as it's conditional and insofar as it says, do these things and you will live, the problem is, Israel doesn't do them, right? directing them away from any kind of conditional covenant to Christ. They regularly nullify and negate the covenant of God, up until the point where God, even in the Old Testament, finally recognizes the divorce and the breach of covenant and hands them over to other nations to be ruled by them and to have their gods as their God. It's kind of verses like where God says, I'm not going to listen to your prayers anymore. I'm not your God anymore. I don't care. No. Okay, so then, um, yeah, but if, I, think, I think now here's a, different, here's a different take, a different perspective on the law. And that is a more positive one, that the law is given, um, the Ten Commandments are given because they express to us the heart of God and who he is, and they express to us who the Messiah will be, his ultimate love for God and love for neighbor on the cross. Um, even when there's breach of the commandments or there's sins committed, there's remedy for that sin in the sacrifices that point to the once and for all sacrifice of which the Old Testament scriptures speak. So it's not like they were ignorant of Christ or even ignorant that he was going to come and be sacrificed. Uh, think of Isaiah 53. Think of Psalm 22. I mean, just to hit some of the lowest hanging fruit. There are Old Testament texts that talk about the Messiah coming and bearing the sins of the people and suffering um, the consequences of that sin in order to set us free. So the whole sacrificial system functions then to uh, give this forgiveness of sins, to distribute this forgiveness of sins. Um, functions in a way that it points forward to Christ through the blood atonement, but the recurring blood atonement points to one that has to come once and for all. But then in a, in a logical or like properly theological perspective, it's the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross that is really what's given as the animal sacrifice is done and as they receive forgiveness. Okay, I, I don't know. I don't want to go maybe down that rabbit hole because it gets a little complicated. But, and it's worthwhile. It's great. But it just gets us a little far afield too. So hopefully that gives you some answer there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, think of the book of Hebrews. How it points to, like, I mean, 
a central thesis, if not the central thesis, is look at the temple, look at the priesthood, look at the sacrifices, see how they all point us to Christ, and Christ is the greater temple, the greater priest, the greater sacrifice. It's all been fulfilled in him. So a very positive view of the old covenant, very positive view of the law. Where you run into the circumcision party in Galatia and coming out of Jerusalem and having influence here and there, there's always this blurring together of, well, you've got to have faith in Jesus. Paul was right. But what Paul failed to tell you is you've also got to be circumcised. And if you've got to be circumcised, then you've got to keep the law too, so faith and works. And that's where Paul, like in Galatians, just says outright, that if, you, if that's what you think, if you're circumcised because you think that that's part of your reconciliation to God, you've fallen from grace. You don't understand what grace is. And that's really the argument here, is Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. He was justified before he kept any of the law. He was justified apart from works. He was justified, justified by faith and works? no. By faith alone. Luther gets in a whole bunch of trouble, in air quotes, for adding the word alone, but it's the only possible meaning of faith apart from works. If faith is apart from works, then faith is definitionally alone. All right, so hopefully that makes some sense then. All right, on to 191. Oh, yes, sir. Sorry, I missed your hand. Well, so God tells Abraham to do this. That's where, that's where it begins. Um, I don't know if there were any other circumcisions that happened. Uh, I kind of doubt it. It's not the first thing that comes to your mind, you know, when you're trying to, especially if you're going to invent a religion, you know, or if a demon's going to try to promote a religion and get it widespread. Usually circumcision isn't the way to do that. Uh, So the idea of circumcision, though, in the Old Testament context is it's, and I don't mean to be too graphic, but it's it's marking the site, you know, of this, of the line that is going to produce the Christ. That's, That's a lot of what's going on there. There is maybe even more dominant in the sense that it's, it's more frequently found in the scriptures, but this idea that in order to be uh, right in God's sight, the old sinful flesh has to be cut off. So this is where, um, this is where in Colossians, Paul compares physical circumcision to spiritual circumcision. The physical circumcision is done with a literal blade. The spiritual circumcision is done with water. And it's a cutting off of the sinful flesh that dwells in us. So you can see how physical circumcision prefigures the spiritual circumcision that is completed in death when the old flesh is cut away from us. So those are like the two most important themes as to like why God randomly said, do this weird and painful thing. It's, it's connected to the promise that through the line of Abraham, through the son of Abraham, remember that big deal, and then, oh, I have no son, 
and then the son comes, uh, but and it's um, you know Abraham's old and his wife is barren and old past the age of childbirth, and so the promise of God to Abraham is located like X marks the spot, okay, <laughs> and so on and so forth, right down the line. It's also why when you, well, I don't know, this is a tangential thing, but that's the sign of the covenant, the sign of the promise that through Abraham's offspring, singular, Paul emphasizes, through Christ will all the families of the earth be blessed. That's the promise connected with circumcision, you see. So it is uh, very much um, like the sign of the covenant, the sign of the promise of the Messiah um, on every male. And you can see how unthinkable then um, sexual sin should be. Adultery should be. Fornication should be. Homosexuality, absolutely. Um, But because you're not going to... I mean, that is the sign of the covenant. You're going to be very careful with that. Does that make sense? Okay. So it lends a, a kind of weight there. Um, yeah. I've probably said enough on all that. Any other, uh, any other thoughts? Any other questions? I, does circumcision need to be continued today? Absolutely not. I, I mean, in Christ, you're free to be circumcised or uncircumcised. You're free to circumcise your kids or not circumcise your kids. I understand there's arguments on both sides. I don't really care to entertain those. Uh, the bottom line is you're free and it shouldn't be imposed upon people and um, parents should be free. That's part of their freedom um, that God's given them in their vocation as parent. I don't really have a comment on all that. I can, I can certainly appreciate both sides of the, uh, certain aspects of both sides of the argument. I know some people say that baptism pre- now. Yeah, it, it kind of does. I mean, it kind of does. So the the comment was that baptism replaces circumcision now. It's just not a pure one-to-one. It's kind of more like a seed to a tree. Like what was essential in circumcision is now fulfilled in baptism, but baptism is so much more than that. I mean, even think of the circumcision being for the male baby only, like the male, I mean, yeah, male. But baptism's for men and women, yeah. Um, so that so that you can see already even in just the simple act and who receives it that baptism is broader than circumcision. But right, I don't mind. So with that caveat out of the way, I don't mind the general statement that baptism replaces circumcision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Certainly, circumcision after Christ has nothing to do with being part of the people of God or not, and. Um, Certainly, I don't, I don't know, I mean, I, I don't, just don't even think this is a problem in the Church of the West. Is anybody trusting their circumcision? <laughs> I think we'll trust Christ instead of that. Yeah. Okay, let's jump back into 191 and onto a more comfortable topic. Will one then obtain and retain righteousness and salvation, even if he indulges his corrupt lusts against conscience? And brings forth no good fruit? And the answer is, by no means. For these most earnest statements and threats of Scripture are to be diligently and earnestly impressed on men. And there's a, um, Romans 8.13, If you live according to the flesh, you shall die. 
So what does that mean, to live according to the flesh? In the words of Chemnitz, it means to indulge in corrupt lust against conscience and bring forth no good fruit. We would just shorthand put that as impenitence. So there's no recognition that it's wrong. There's no sorrow of the heart. There's no desire to change. These are all indicative of an impenitent uh, heart that has um, lost its faith or never had it in the first place. If you live according to the flesh, you shall die. And then other citations here from Galatians 5 and Ephesians 5. They that do such things shall not possess the kingdom of God. 1 John 3.14 He that does not love remains in death. When David therefore took a strange woman, he was surely neither just nor saved in the sight of God. And that not for this reason, that something else and more is necessary for justification and salvation besides Christ apprehended by faith. For righteousness and salvation must be present first before good and God-pleasing works can be done. Or as scripture says, a tree must first be good before it can bear good fruits. But because good fruits necessarily follow where true faith, righteousness, and salvation are present, therefore where no good fruits are brought forth, it is a very sure sign that no true faith is present there but that righteousness and salvation have been lost. Okay, and then uh, different citations given there. So David is a, is a really important and good example of this because after he commits sin with Bathsheba, which is a specific kind of sin, it's not what we would classically call a sin of weakness. A sin of weakness... Um, is one that one easily falls into. David sees her, lusts after her, goes to his servant, calls her over. He's got time to sit there and think about what he's doing. Uh, It's this manifest physical action. Um, It has a certain kind of uh, public nature to it. Um, He does the deed. Does he feel contrition and sorrow in his heart? Does he say, what have I done? No, he goes on with, a hard heart, um, and then when he finds out that she's conceived and uh, there's, there's going to be an issue because there's going to be a child, does he then repent and come clean and have a confession of sins and a forgiveness and a making of things right? No. He just keeps going down the hardened path uh, that clearly indicates an unbelieving heart. He tries to deceive Uriah, her husband, coming back from the war. He tries to get them to sleep together. He won't because he's an honorable man and in solidarity with his fellow troops. When they're out in the battlefield, he's not going to be home having a good time. So he refuses to sleep with her. So then David, in another act of hardness of heart, gets him drunk and now try to go sleep with her. And he's still too principled and won't. And so then David has him, not only does he have him killed, but he has him killed by carrying his own death sentence in his hand back to the front lines. The letter that says, put him in a dangerous spot so he gets whacked. 
And then David, by his sin and impenitence and hardness of heart, implicates the generals or whoever it was who was responsible for carrying this out. They, they too should have stopped and said no, but the king says do it. That's a lot of pressure. They might take their own life in their hands. So David's sin just keeps on growing and growing. And then after all that's done, and he, then, then what does he do? Marries the widow, which makes him look like a hero. Yeah. Oh, here's this, uh, you know, here's this poor widow of bold, brave Uriah. Let's have a parade for him, and I'll take in the widow and care for her. And the whole thing's to hide the sin so that then the baby that's already conceived in her, he can say, oh yeah, it's mine, but it's all legit. So he's trying to hide and cover his sin, and again, doing so in repulsive, disgusting ways, not coming clean, not making right. And so, of course, this goes on, and even then, when the dust is settled and he's in the clear, is there any indication that he confesses to God, that he says, boy, I really botched this, I can't, you know? No. In fact, God has to send a prophet to him, and the prophet tells a story, and by the time David hears the story, he condemns the man, and he's ready to put that man to death because he stole a little sheep, Right? Remember the story of the man who has uh, thousands of sheep he can choose from and a man who has one sheep that's like a daughter to him and eats at his table. The rich man with thousands of sheep goes over and takes the one for himself and cooks it and prepares it. And David, rightfully incensed by this, says that man deserves to die. And of course, then the prophet Nathan says, well, you're that man. And David is finally then brought to his senses by that law and by that self-indictment. And Psalm 51 is written and uh, on and on, and the rest is history, so to speak. David is brought back to the faith. But he's a very good example of what impenitent sin looks like. And when sin reigns in one's life, how it begets more and more sin. That's a, that's a different category than um, sins of weakness or um, sins that one commits and then immediately feels guilty about or immediately seeks to remedy. Two different categories. Even if they're not quite like airtight in your mind, it's one of these things where you know it when you see it. Please, sir. I'm uh, probably stating the obvious, but it's never mentioned, and not to excuse David at all. But what is Bathsheba doing, allowing a man to observe her and, uh, in some fashion, and in fact, possibly somewhat parading herself in front of him? Yeah. Uh, she is not, uh, she's not guiltless here. Well, I mean, that's a, that's a, you're welcome and entitled to that opinion. I really don't have an opinion on that. If it is a point, this, it's just not a point the scriptures draw out to what degree she's complicit in it. Um, I don't know the, um, what would it be, like the 10th century B.C. mores on bathing. Like, I don't know if uh, she was doing it in an appropriate place or what. Um, so if people want to entertain that there's some culpability, uh, I'm, willing to, I'm willing to entertain that with you all. But it just isn't a point that the scriptures themselves seem to emphasize. The scriptures themselves seem to emphasize David, his sin, his uh, attempts to cover over his sin 
and his final repentance as. So you can think of another example in Scripture, and there are many such examples, um, but another really good example to keep in mind it would be this. Um, so, yes, Jesus is abandoned by his disciples in the garden when they all flee away from him. You remember this? But really, two disciples betray him uh, uniquely. Judas, of course, with the kiss, but Peter with the threefold denial, even taking up an oath. So there's two uh, rejections of Jesus. There's two denials of Jesus. And there's two different responses. Judas knows what he's, comes to know that what he's done is wrong. And he goes and returns the silver. But rather than repent, rather than be forgiven, he's got this arrogant knot of pride within him. And no faith, no soft heart, no regenerate soul. And he goes out and hangs himself. Peter, likewise, comes to know that he is wrong. Interestingly, it's a rooster. It's the crowing of the rooster. Um, some Christians, and in some Christian traditions, this is even more popular, but it's, it's one of the places where uh, chickens or roosters decorating the home became a popular motif. Now, I know that from, from that flows all kinds of things like, oh, I just like chickens. Um, that's fine. But that's kind of where the idea of putting roosters in the home is, is a reminder for Christians to recognize your sins. As soon as Peter hears the crowing of the rooster, he instantly breaks down and weeps. Now, when the Lord approaches him, Peter is willing to receive that reconciliation. Peter doesn't off himself, but commends himself into the hands of God, who is good and gracious. So there's, there's an example of two sins that are virtually identical at root, and two very different responses. One of a kind of sorrow like Cain, sorrow like Esau, a sorrow that isn't really a sorrow, and that's Judas. There's this prideful arrogance and I'll not trust God. I'll not concede to God's mercy. And then there's the other response. There's the response of um, Jacob and the response of um, Peter and the response of David. And it's the response of when you've sinned, you confess and you are forgiven. So impenitence versus penitence. And uh, we as Christians can fall into impenitence and be restored by the Lord. Um, by no means is this recommended. Yes. So we're told that sin is sin. Yes. But now we're pointing out that some sins that are previously contemplated more more serious and it seems there are more severe consequences for those sins mm-hmm. I'm just thinking Peter what was his consequence did he have any consequences after he was restored well I think so <laughs> I, I think so I think in his own heart 
in his own soul, he bore those scars. I think that's evidenced in, um, and I believe it's tradition that tells us this, that when he was going to be put to death, he insisted, by cross, he insisted that it be upside down. I think that's, not all Christians insisted that on that. Just figured, well, take up your cross and follow me, and if it was good enough for my Savior, it's good enough for me. Peter's insistence, I mean, insofar as that's true, Peter's insistence on that really shows a deep sense of his own failings. You know, the other evidence of that, too, is um, in the Gospels in general and in, um, I think it's Mark in particular, there's some embarrassing things that um, could have pretty much only come out of Peter's mouth because nobody else would put it that way. He would put it that way. So sort of um, reading between the lines and indeed sometimes just even reading the lines um, where Peter's indicating something that happened, he's, he's brutal on himself. He's merciless on himself. He's, nope, this is exactly how it was. That, that's indicative of a heart that has been um, you know, broken by God and that, that broken heart, um, that contrite spirit uh, that is that is pleasing in the Lord's sight. That's indicative, I think, in Peter's spirit, right alongside of a boldness. You know, he doesn't fall into despair. He just despairs of himself and trusts in the Lord. When it comes to himself, he's willing to be brutally honest. Um, even look at the heart that Peter indicates, like when Paul very publicly confronts him when he's in his error. Peter doesn't act like that's the first time it's ever happened. He goes, okay. <laughs> I see. <laughs> I've, I, I, I'm off on the wrong foot again. Let, I know how to correct this. It has a kind of humility, um, but it's a humility that's one at the cost of a kind of pain, of knowing who you are and knowing what, what your heart, the nature of your heart. And I, I think that it's set forth as a good example for all of us, as a very positive example. Yeah, please. Um, wasn't Peter's sorrow uh, in large part due to the fact that he realized that the consequences of his sin had fallen on Jesus with his death and his crucifixion? Like just in a general sense, you mean? Yeah, like, I mean like all it, Christians feel? Is that, is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, I, if specifically Peter is breaking down and crying. He, he's obviously sorrowful. Yeah. Um, and to a certain extent, at that point, I know it happens other places too, um, his eyes are open to what Jesus has been saying for the last three years about him needing to die for the sins of all mankind. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly I, I wouldn't exclude that. That's, that's very true. You remember um, how this works so uh, on the evening of Maundy Thursday, before he's betrayed, they're in the upper room. And this is where Jesus, ahead of time, says that uh, Judas is going to betray him. But there's also this exchange with Peter. Peter says, I will never betray you. And then Jesus says, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And I mean, just you think you, this is just such a, I don't know, I try not to preach in a 30-minute sermon on this point alone, but I, it's such a profound point because, no, because we all have that kind of certainty of ourselves, or at least most of us do. Like, I would never do that. 
I mean, if for no other reason than you say that it's going to be, okay, I'll just make sure it's not going to be, right? Um, but yeah, just hours later, there Peter is denying him three times, and in, in an embarrassing fashion. Who was standing by the charcoal fire that knew the threefold betrayal, that knew who questioned him, including the little girl that he capitulates to? Who knows that? Just Peter. That stuff comes to us in the scriptures because Peter, so when you look at the brutal honesty and how he like shows you who it is and what they said and how easily he capitulated, I mean, that's all firsthand account of a penitent heart and of a huge man. I mean, of a huge man to be able to say that um, and, and have that written. So, you know, an incredible soul there. So that you've got this threefold denial of Jesus uh, the rooster crows, and he instantly knows. You know, it's like a lightning bolt into his heart. Now, when Jesus restores him, there's a lot going on in John 21 with the restoration of Peter, but remember where the denial takes place? The denial takes place by a charcoal fire. What's the very setting that John highlights? And it's beautiful that it comes from John, I think. Um, John's the one who let Peter in in the first place. And it and it's almost too precious and too dear for Peter to recount. It, puts him, it would put himself too much at the center. For John to recount it and recall it is just perfect. But the key piece is the charcoal fire. Remember, they're coming back, and the Lord's waiting there by the charcoal fire. So it's going to be the same site, so to speak, poetically. Um, it's going to be the same site where the threefold denial took place that the threefold restoration is going to take place. So, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Repeated three times. Part of that is the personal restoration of Peter. A threefold denial, he's brought back into threefold love and relationship with Christ, his Savior. And given and restored back to his position of under-shepherd. Feed my sheep, tend to my flock, feed my sheep. Yeah. So there's a lot biblically there to think on, and it's the kind of stuff that's good to be a sponge with. Just soak it in, take it in. That's what, there's so, there's so much deep lessons that our souls can learn from his soul and our Lord and that full exchange. Okay, very good. So then um, we've got examples in the scriptures of penitence and impenitence of a kind of spiritual condition. Um, And really properly, like if you want to dissect this a bit further, there David is standing on the balcony. He sees the temptation. And as he's acquiescing to the temptation he's simultaneously losing complete sight of God. And it would be, I, I mean, yes, it's a, it's a terrible sin. It would be devastating and have devastating consequences for David and everyone else. But it would be a different spiritual animal, a different spiritual situation, if no sooner than the deed was done, David would have repented and would have said, what on earth was I thinking? This is insane how do I confess my sins? How do I receive God's forgiveness? How do I bear the punishment and or make this right? That's, that would be a different story, wouldn't it be? 
but David sadly. So if you're going to dissect it, there's a loss of faith before the deed is even done. And that's like willful, impenitent, against conscience, knowing, those kinds of words. And um, really then, the sin itself is symptomatic of a loss of faith that's taking place. That's, uh, that's really the point here. It's not that some sins are worse than others and some sins God says, okay, that's it. That kind of puts the cart before the horse. Like, this is such a bad sin, I'm going to take away your faith. It's more like you lost your faith, thus you fell into the sin. That's a, that's a cleaner and clearer way of looking at it. Okay, so then on to uh, 195. Did I finish? Did I finish 194? Did I do 194? I didn't do 90, 194. 191. Oh, that my page flipped over. <laughs> Sorry. Looking at the wrong page altogether. We finished 191. My page didn't flip over. My eye flipped over. 192. What then are the reasons for which good works are to be done by believers or those who are justified? The Augsburg Confession and the Apology, that's the defense of the Augsburg Confession, set forth the reasons thus. It is necessary to do good works commanded by God, not that we may trust to earn grace by them, but because of the will and command of God. Likewise, to exercise faith and for the sake of confession and giving of thanks. Urbanus Regius in the booklet De Formulis Cate Loquende summarizes the reasons in this way. One, because our good works are due obedience commanded by God, which we creatures owe the Creator, and they are, as it were, thanksgiving for the favors of God and sacrifices pleasing to God because of Christ. There's a ton packed in there. We could separate out some categories, but let's say we did and not. Two, that our Heavenly Father might be glorified thereby. Three, that our faith might be exercised and increased by our good works so that it may grow and be stirred up. So they're saving faith, and that saving faith can manifest itself in strength or in weakness. Times weak, times strong in the same Christian, uh, no doubt about it, but in the same way that you like exercise a muscle and it gets bigger, or you exercise your golf swing and it gets smoother, okay? or you exercise your mind at chess and it's uh, sharper. And if you let those things go, they get dull or they get weak or you lose the skill. Faith can be exercised in the same way. And faith is exercised when we do those things that God commands us. And frequently baked in is some sort of self-sacrifice or some sort of uh, loss. Not always, but frequently and baked in. And that's the idea then of, I mean, that illustrates the idea of faith getting stronger. As you go, I did what was right. No good deed goes unpunished. I'm still going to do what's right. Faith is stronger and more robust than faith was earlier in your life when you did the good work, bad came about it, and you said, now why on earth did I ever do that? I'll never do that again. I see how God treats me when I keep his law. So that's a profoundly weak faith and 
and a kind of faith that God would have us grow out of by the exercise of faith. And many other examples could be rendered, but just wanted to speak a word there on what it means when, on point three, it says that, that our faith may be exercised and increased by our good works so that it may grow and be stirred up. Four, that our neighbor might be edified by our good works and spurred to imitation and be helped in need. Five, that we might make our calling sure by good works. Excuse me. That's, a, that's right out of scripture. And testify that our faith is neither feigned nor dead. So again, as I've said before, when we're just normally functioning as healthy Christians, good works are a natural part of faith, and we ought to look and say, well, that sounds like a good work. Great, I'm going to do it. That, that sounds like a good thing to do. That seems, sounds like a God-pleasing thing to do. Good, I'm going to do it. And there's nothing wrong in the least with reflecting um, that our calling is, sure by such, is made sure by such good works. And they testify that our faith is neither feigned nor dead. Six, though our good works do not merit either justification or salvation, yet they are to be done since they have promises of this life and of that which is to come. First uh, Timothy 4, 8 cited, but we could cite a number of different statements from Jesus to this effect. Uh, and that is that our, our good works have reward, but just because God is so gracious and so good, they have reward in this life and in the next. So if you haven't been rewarded in this life for something good you've done and you're feeling kind of bitter about it, don't. You think God's forgotten? He's got a reward saved up for you in heaven. That's the point. If you're feeling kind of bitter that nobody recognizes you or nobody gives you thanks or nobody truly understands what it is that you've done or are doing, um, in a sense, you should like relax and, and, because it's kind of almost like giddy. That means my father is going to reward in heaven. <laughs> And he's not going to reward because I'm owed. That's an ugly spirit. He's going to reward because he's profoundly good and because he's promised to. So you can live life just kind of full tilt, not worrying about like, well, did everybody write me a thank you note? Did everybody recognize my self-sacrifice? In fact, that's kind of at counter purposes, isn't it? Just live free, not even giving a thought to it. And where people give you thanks and praise, okay, great, whatever. But if you're doing it to receive thanks and praise, remember what Jesus teaches in Matthew 6 and the Sermon on the Mount? That's the problem with the Pharisees. All their good works will be done to be seen in the sight of men so that they can receive thanks and praise from men. And Jesus says, truly, they've received their reward. But when you do these things in secret, there's even a sense in which you do them secret to yourself, not letting your right hand know what your left hand is doing. That is, you just lose track of them. It's not like you don't know their good works. It's not like you've got to somehow deceive yourself. It's just you live so freely that you just don't even recognize, like, it's not like, doo, 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 blow a horn, everyone. I'm doing a good work here. Pay attention, right? Uh, you just go about your life free and doing good stuff uh, and trusting yourself to God. That's, what it, that's, in effect, what it means to, to do um, with your right hand without letting your left hand know what it's doing or whatever that go, however that goes. Your father who sees in secret will reward in secret. So in this life and in that which is to come. So just wonderful, um, wonderful promises here given um, to, our, to obedience. And again, it's not like, okay, well, you know, you, 
like we get that we get so defeatist about this because we think on the wrong categories, but it's like, well, I can't do it perfectly, so I'm not going to do it at all. <laughs> well, I'm not. I can't do it perfectly, um, so so therefore God's not going to reward me. So what's the point? I mean, all of that is just crippling slave logic, uh, spiritual slave logic. Um, free logic is. I'm, I'm going to go do the good thing. I don't really care what negative motivations I have or how other people might perceive this or is it going to get rewarded or not or am I going to get well enough or yeah, I'm just going to forget all that. I'm just going to go live free. I'm just going to go shine light and how much light? Well, who knows? Any light's better than no light, right? <laughs> so a different perspective. That's the logic of a sun. That's the logic of abundance. That's the logic of... Uh, um, you know, I don't have to save the world today, but if I can just give Satan another Monday, that'd be great. Let's give Satan a week of Mondays. Let's deliver it back a little. That's perfect, right? So, yeah, I love this. I love this idea here that um, they have promises of this life and of that which is to come. Okay, next in Loci Communis, which, boy, we read once in here a long time ago, I think. Philip Melanchthon lists in this order the reasons why good works are to be done. One, because it is God's command and we are debtors. Two, lest faith be lost and the Holy Spirit grieved and driven out. So, yeah, we should do good works out of, out of a sense of fear, too. Like, you don't, like why, should I, why should I keep the sixth commandment? Because I don't want to end up like David did. I don't want to have that episode in my life or have that episode and not come back from it. So there's this sense of like, we should, we should fear sin and thus do the opposite of sin, which is good, um, that we not play around with fire. So lest faith be lost and the Holy Spirit grieved and driven out the position of uh, Melanchthon, Chemnitz, and Scripture. Three, to avoid punishments. <laughs> yeah, good old first use of the law. It's great. In the life of a Christian, it's at work too. Like, don't do evil lest bad stuff come upon you. Okay, four, since our works, though they do not fulfill the law of God and not merit eternal life, are nevertheless called by God sacrifices that both please and serve him for the sake of Christ. So, I, again, I, I think that we've gotten somewhat robbed of this by some sort of weird, quote-unquote, Lutheran piety of the 20th century. The idea that the good works we do, we do because they please God. So why would I do this thing that's going to be to my own hurt? But it's clearly the right thing. Because that pleases God. And what a beautiful motivation for, for life. You know, what a beautiful motivation to wake up in the day. Like, what are you up to today? Mm, I'd like to please God. Well, you can't please God unless you live perfectly. Mm, that's not what the Bible says. <laughs> the Bible says where I, where I don't please God, where I sin, the righteousness of Christ covers me, and he reckons not my sins against me. So what, what am I going to do in whatever ways I see to do? I'm going to... Please God. He's my father. I love him. He's great. He's wonderful. I want to be just like him. I know I'm going to fail, so what? I'm going to go about it as best I can. Ah, it's just great. It's wonderful. Ah, it's the furthest thing in the world from self-righteousness. It's the first thing in the world of 
confusing law and gospel and all this other nonsense that's thrown at us by 20th century, quote-unquote, Lutherans. Uh, I hope you're seeing that here historically. Part of the value of studying this is like, what do the scriptures actually say? What do Lutherans actually teach? Because you're going to find it's a little different than what's around these days. All right, five, since godliness has promises of this life and of that which is to come. So there again, just spelling out the temporal and eternal benefits. Luther, all right, so we've got this Urbanus guy, we've got Philip Melanchthon, and now we've got Luther. Luther sets forth the reasons why good works are to be done in such a way that if they were briefly summarized, the list would be about this. First, some have regard to God himself, namely since it is the will of God and the command of God. So I like think about the third commandment here. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy? For like decades we've been telling people, well, you have to go to church because it's good for you. Okay, that's true. But if that's all you're saying, then that's like, hey, you're the most important thing. And this is going to help you continue to be the most important thing. But what if you said, I mean, wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be better, more accurate, more balanced to say, well, you have to go to church because God's God. He's worthy of it. Your heavenly father, your maker, wants you to come over for a family meal once a week. It's insulting to him if you don't come. It's rude. It's loveless. Oh, and by the way, the food's pretty good too. So yeah, you'll have a great time. <laughs> you know, that, that is a more faithful emphasis. And we've just been afraid to talk this way. I don't know why, because Satan somehow put on a little Lutheran garment and has been trotting around for too long. Um, this is uh, it's just a beautiful idea, and it's right from Luther. First, some have regard to God himself, namely since it is the will of God and the command of God. That's it. No utility, no self-improvement, no nothing else. God says it, do it. It's great, and it pleases him. Luther continues, or the summation of Luther continues, and since he is our father, it therefore behooves us children to render obedience to the father. Gee, is God a little wiser than I am? Does he maybe see things more clearly? Maybe see a little further into the future than I do? Uh, It just might be beneficial to listen to him. So that's good reason to do good works. Continuing with the summation of Luther. And as he loved us and graciously forgave our sins, so we also should love the brethren, forgiving them their sins that God might be glorified through us. So as we're, as we're forgiving, we're showing forth God's forgiveness. We're manifesting that forgiveness. We're being little Christ, little sons of the Father. And that is um, like right at the core of the glory of the Lord filling the earth. That God might be glorified through us. Christ also redeemed us that being dead to sins, remember we're supposed to reckon or count ourselves dead to sins, we might live unto righteousness and serve him. 
Lots of citations given there from the New Testament. Nor should we grieve the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and a, and a warning in Ephesians 4, another citation from 1 Thessalonians 4, um, that we not grieve the Holy Spirit. So probably some we should pay a little more attention to. You know, the Holy Spirit compels and urges you on to do good works. And if you just say no long enough, eventually he kind of stops asking. That's not great for you. <laughs> and who on earth would like say, you know, I'd, I'd really like to grieve the Holy Spirit. Sounds, sounds, like, sounds like a good goal to have for this coming decade. I'd like to just drag my feet as much as possible. So, yeah, to exercise the faith, to have an ear for the Holy Spirit. And by that, I don't mean like he's going to speak voodoo into your ears or something. I mean, that's nonsense. But that he's going to compel your heart. He's going to open your eyes. He's going to give you these moments where your heart's moved to do something insofar as you're able to follow through. Like, where, where does that compulsion to do good come from? If not the Holy Spirit. So we don't have to get all woo-woo or all voodoo or all God's talking to me or God laid this on my heart, but just pay attention to what he's compelling you to and, um, and take that as a pretty good indication. You know. All right. That's all Luther. Can you believe it? And that's all the time we've got, too. Let's pick up next week because we've got more Luther coming. Parts 2 and Parts 3 from Luther on page 99. The Lord be with you.